Well, greetings to all our friends and brethren around the world from Charlotte, North Carolina. It's a beautiful Sabbath day here. As you heard the announcements, we had a very successful weekend for the family winter weekend in Kansas City. Uh, we had an excellent Bible study by uh, Mr. Wally Smith at the Benjamin Ranch when my wife and I went out there and saw all these dilapidated buildings. We said, what is this? But actually, it was a pretty nice uh, accommodation for one part for the Sabbath services for 486 people and then the other part for the uh, barbecue beef, which was just excellent, and the dance that followed. As uh, mentioned in the bulletin, you can read about the report from Mr. Anthony Stroud of what took place there. So we had a very good time there. We were able to visit uh, three nieces and their families uh, while we were there, and the weather was actually warmer than it was here in Charlotte. So uh, we appreciated the loving family atmosphere that was there, uh, just similar to what we had here in our winter weekend in Charlotte. While we were there, we invited everyone to the singles weekend, so we need to be thinking about that. It just so happens that Memorial Day weekend here in Charlotte, where we normally have the singles weekend, is Pentecost weekend. But the singles decided they still want to host guests from around the nation, so we have the singles weekend. I invited everyone here to Charlotte not knowing that it was Pentecost weekend, but I'm sure we'll have quite a few guests for Pentecost weekend, the singles weekend as well. Last week was January 1st, and as you know, many people around the world make New Year's resolutions. Uh, One survey found that 44% of those making resolutions uh, made the resolution to lose weight, and I think some of us uh, have made that resolution not on New Year's Day, but uh, throughout the year. Calvin and Hobbes were talking about New Year's resolutions. Calvin, of course, is the precocious little boy, and Hobbes is the wise tiger who counsels him. And so Calvin is talking to Hobbes. Hobbes the tiger says, how are you doing on your New Year's resolutions? And Calvin says, I didn't make any. Calvin says, see, in order to improve oneself, one must have some idea of what's good, quote-unquote, That implies certain values. But as we all know, values are relative. Every system of belief is equally valid, and we need to tolerate diversity. Virtue isn't better than vice. It's just different. And so Hobbes says, I don't know if I can tolerate that much tolerance. And then Calvin says, I refuse to be victimized by notions of virtuous behavior. And really, again, that just illustrates the concept and philosophy of the world. Everything's relative. And I don't want to have certain virtues. Everyone else's ideas and standards of morality are just as good as anyone else's. And so we realize that we in God's church have a totally different perspective. It's a perspective based on reality, the reality of a loving God who has a great plan and purpose for every human being on earth, and how awesome and wonderful that is. And we have to purpose and to dedicate our lives for this spring season and throughout as we look forward to the Passover, by the way. 
But we reflect briefly back on 2011. Dr. Winnale wrote in the church bulletin and uh, watched Bible prophecies. And 2011 did set records for natural disaster damage. It was a record year for tornadoes in the United States, as noted by a writer from Scientific American. April 25th to April 28th, 2011, super outbreak of 343 tornadoes was the largest and most expensive earth outbreak in U.S. history, according to Masters, causing $10.2 billion. The May 22nd, 2011 tornado in Joplin killed 158 people and injured 1,150 making it the deadliest U.S. tornado since 1947 and the seventh deadliest in history. The $3 billion in insured damages makes it the most expensive tornado in world history. Back there in Dr. Meredith's hometown. So will 2012 set new records? The Bible admonishes us to watch and pray always. And it also admonishes us to focus on the supreme goal that God has given us. And what is that goal? I answered that question a few weeks ago in a sermon simply titled Matthew 6, verse 33. Let's turn to that again, Matthew 6, verse 33. You know, as you read the Scriptures over and over again, it just seems the next sometime you read it, and you've read it hundreds of times, and yet sometime you look at it and you get a different Perspective. God gives a different light on the Scripture. Here Jesus was berating his audience for not having faith. He said, oh, you of little faith. So you have that as a context. He says in verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. What should be added to you? All the physical things, but also the faith that they were lacking. If you're seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness, God will add to you his faith. Verse 34, therefore do not worry. Worry is the opposite of faith. Do not worry about it tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own troubles. So we have to seek the supreme goal. That goal that God has given us that few people in the world understand. They don't understand our ultimate destiny. They don't understand the glorious future that God has for all of us to be a part of his royal family for all eternity. Last time I spoke on the first part of Matthew 6.33 and how to seek God's kingdom. Today I want to cover the second part of that mission, and that is seek God's righteousness. The title of today's sermon is simply that, Seek God's Righteousness. Let's turn to Matthew, the 13th chapter. Matthew 13. I still, first of all, want to review the first part of Matthew 6.33 and seeking God's kingdom first. But again, how precious and how important and how vital is the kingdom of God to you personally? Are you just thinking of it as kind of an intellectual exercise, something that's uh, knowledge of interest, or is it something that you've dedicated and committed your life to, your life's blood, your time, your energy, your very life itself? Matthew, the 13th chapter, we have several parables. 
Verse 44 is the parable of the hidden treasure. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. For And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. We heard in the sermonette by Mr. Lawrence the sacrifices that he had to make in order to make that choice. And we've all had to make that commitment. We decided, as Jesus warned us and told us to count the cost in Luke 14, that we would love him more than any other human being, including our own lives. And that we had to forsake all that we have or else we could not be his disciple. And so we made that commitment because we see that the treasure of God's kingdom is priceless. Then the parable of the pearl of great price, verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. You're investing your energies, your emotions, your life, everything that you have and everything that you are to seek that kingdom. In the Behind the Work video at the feast, remember Dr. Meredith had gone to Ambassador College, came back to his home in Joplin, Missouri, and visited one of his friends. And his friends seemed to see a different aura about him and said, oh, you found what you're looking for. And Dr. Meredith said, yes, the pearl of great price. Have you found the pearl of great price? Do you know what it is? And have you committed your life to seek it and to grasp it and to persevere to the very end? Last time I gave you four different or different keys to seeking the kingdom first. I'll just brief, briefly review those. Number one was always be conscious of the two great commandments. If you're seeking God's kingdom, what is most important? Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. That's Mark 12, verses 30 and 31. So we must ask the question, in everything that we do and think and say, are my thoughts right now, are my actions supporting the first two great commandments? If they're not, there's a disconnect. Something's wrong. We have a wrong priority. So number one is always be conscious of the two great commandments. Number two, in seeking first the kingdom of God, is determine your priorities in life. What's most important to you? Networking with social media or networking with God the Father and with Christ? And... How you use your time, does that reflect that priority in your life? What did Jesus say? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I asked last time, how many of you since sunset last night to right now at least got on your knees and prayed for one minute? And I asked last time, how many of you since sunset last night, have read your Bible, opened your Bible, and read your Bible for at least one minute. Now, it's just a little test to show you if you didn't spend at least one minute, something's wrong. Something's not right. 
in your dedication to God's kingdom. But we presume that most everyone here has done that and will do that. And, of course, it has to be more than a minute. We have to be instant in prayer and to pray without ceasing. I shared with you uh, Mr. Richard Sedliacek's article from the July-August 2011 LCN titled, Our Christian Priorities. Quote, we have seen that the four imperatives, the four priorities in order are, one, God, two, family, three, work, four, church. If we keep these priorities in balance, not neglecting any of them and not putting them in the wrong order, we can look forward to the time when we will find ourselves standing before Jesus Christ as spirit beings, glistening in glory as he returns to earth to bring world peace, happiness, and prosperity to all mankind. So number two is make sure you have selected the right priorities. What are your priorities? And, of course, that means how you're using your time. Dr. Meredith wrote an article titled, Give Your Life Your Time to God. That was July, August 2008, LCN. He writes, Jesus commanded, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you, Matthew 6.33. Obviously, if you seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, you will use your time as needed to do this. You will have to learn to discipline yourself in your use of this very precious element in your life. Most people are not time conscious. They just sort of wander through life letting things happen to them here and there, wasting time, not accomplishing nearly as much as they could. So key number two is determine your priorities in life. Key number three in seeking God's kingdom is to practice spiritual strategies. As you know, Daniel, when he was threatened by the king, by the situation, of being thrown into the lion's den because he would have petitioned another god other than the king. It said in Daniel 6.10, Now when Daniel knew the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his god, as was his custom since early days. He gave thanks knowing that he would be thrown into a lion's den. Now, can you do that? It's like, you know, Philippians 4, 6, that be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplications, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And, of course, the result is the peace of God that surpasses all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. Practice spiritual strategies, and that means praying three times a day, of course, always being instant in prayer and to pray without ceasing. You know Psalm 55, 17, another memorization verse. Evening, morning, and at noon I will pray and cry aloud, said David, and he shall hear my voice. So there's the matter of constant and daily prayer. Never let a day... Go by without praying. If you have, of course, you've transgressed the first commandment of having another God before the true God, something more important to you than God. Then Bible study. 
Of course, we look at the example of the Bereans in Acts 17, verse 10. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and did what? Search the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Fasting, or as we fasted on December 17th as a church, humbling ourselves before God and beseeching Him to intervene in the lives of our brethren who are sick and afflicted and have light and some of many of them a life-threatening disease. So we look forward to God's intervention. As Jesus said, we might turn there, Matthew 6. Oh, we're already in Matthew 13. Matthew 6 and verse 16, he talked about fasting. Moreover, when you fast, Matthew 6, 16, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance where they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to fast to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees you in secret will reward you openly. So we know those are the tools, meditation, fasting, Bible study, and prayer. And in the upcoming March-April Living Church News, we have an article titled Christian Meditation. That's Dr. Meredith's editorial. So number three in seeking God's kingdom is to practice spiritual strategies. Number four is to listen to the shepherd's voice and understand that when, as we heard Mr. Lawrence in the sermonette, or when we read from the Bible, or when we read an article in the Tomorrow's World magazine, or read a booklet, or read the Living Church News, that we need to understand that that is coming from God, from Christ, and He is teaching us through the Scriptures, through the messages that come from His servants. We need to be clear to hear. Jesus said, He that has ears to hear, let him hear. And He said that many times. John 10:27 My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. So if you've proven and I'm talking not just to our brethren here in Charlotte but other places around the world if you've proven where Christ is working then you'll be diligently reading and hearing and listening to what the leaders are teaching. And as I said before even years ago when I first came into Worldwide Church of God, the first thing I would look for in a Plain Truth magazine is what is the editorial? What is Mr. Herbert Armstrong, the leader of the church at that time, saying? What is Christ leading me to do through his writing? And the same with a coworker letter. How do you respond to a coworker letter? Do you view it as a message from Christ to you? And do you respond to it? I know years ago I thought, well, I'm going to make sure that I respond to it by putting at least a dollar in the envelope and sending it back to Charlotte or Pasadena or wherever I lived at the time. And to realize, yes, I need to respond. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. John 10, verse 27. Although I didn't number it as number five in how to seek God, yet... I did comment on it, and that is to renew your commitment. We heard in the sermonette that we need to complete our journey. We have a commitment to complete our journey. 
I mentioned already about the uh, three cannots. I mentioned two of them, but let's take a look at that quickly. Uh, Luke, the 14th chapter, because it's a part of the agreement, the contract, the commitment that we made at baptism. Luke 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate or love less by comparison, his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. That's the first cannot. There are three cannots in this section. The second one, and whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And some of us have burdens to bear that are maybe physical ailments or diseases. Uh, Some of it may be a financial burden. Some of it may be a relationship burden of persecution. But Jesus said, you've got to bear that burden, not only bear it, but to continue to go forward, to come after me. If you don't, you cannot be my disciple, he says. And then finally, verse 33, so likewise, whoever of you do not... Likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. There must not be anything of greater value in your life or focus than the kingdom of God and God's righteousness. You love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. First Corinthians, the ninth chapter. First Corinthians 9, verse 24. The apostle Paul Realized, yes, I've made that commitment to seek first the kingdom of God, and I have to be careful that I don't let down and fall away. And how many of us know of friends or relatives or former church members who have let down, who didn't really discipline themselves, who didn't really seek the kingdom of God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? The Apostle Paul says in verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 9, And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Yes, moderate, self-controlled. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Verse 26, Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So again, we have to make sure that we're striving to do what is right and good. I won't turn there, but Jesus said in Luke 13, verse 24, Strive to enter through this narrow gate. And the margin in my New King James Bible says, Strive, or no, it's the authorized King James Bible, Strive as in agony. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Then one more scripture on commitment here. Jeremiah, the 13th chapter, Jeremiah 13 and verse 11. Jeremiah 13. In fact, we heard a sermonette here just two weeks ago by Jim Meredith on commitment. Are you a committed Christian? And then Dr. Meredith followed that up with, are you a conquered Christian? Jeremiah 13 and verse 11. Very colorful description of how close you should be in your relationship to God. For as the sash clings to the waist of a man, 
So I have caused the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me, says the Eternal, that they may become my people for renown, for praise, for glory, but they would not hear. The King James Version has it, I think, a little more colorful, but it's very similar. For as the girdle cleaves to the loins of a man, how close a relationship is that? Of course, the new King James is a belt around your waist, and you draw that belt pretty tight. It's a very tight relationship. In the King James Version, for as the girdle cleaves to the loins of man, so have I caused to cleave unto me the whole house of Israel. So we need to cling and cleave to God and to Christ. So how should you seek your glorious goal of the kingdom? Number one, always be conscious of the two great commandments. Number two, determine your priorities in life. Number three, practice spiritual strategies. Number four, listen to the shepherd's voice. And some do not take warning. They're not listening. And number five, renew your commitment. For the remainder of the sermon, I want to cover the second part of that mission of Matthew 6.33, and that's to seek God's righteousness. Well, what is God's righteousness? Old-timers know one answer to that question, but let's turn there. Psalm 119, 172. If we're to seek God's righteousness, what is it? Psalm 119, one answer is 119, 172. My tongue shall speak of your word, for all your commandments are righteousness. God's way of life is given to us. It's revealed to us through the great Ten Commandments. And, of course, God wants us to not only keep the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law as well. God's righteousness is a way of life. It's a way of godly love. So how do you know that? How do you know it's a way of godly love? Well, because Romans 13.10 says, Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So God's laws tell us how to love. Let's turn back to Psalm 1, which gives us a perspective on righteousness. Psalm 1, and uh, sometime when I can't sleep at night, I might just be reciting this in bed. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. So we have walking, standing, and sitting, but his delight is in the law of the eternal, and in his law he meditates day and night. And what will be the results? You're going to be fruitful. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in a season. His leaf also shall not wither. Even in tough times, drought, his leaf will shall not wither. And whatever he does shall prosper. It's going to support God's way of life. The ungodly are not so. Now, we can take... Uh, Topical study on some of those very descriptors, ungodly, unrighteous, wicked. On the other hand, look at, uh, do a topical study in your Bible on righteous, the upright, uh, the godly. But the ungodly, verse 4, are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. 
Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. And I pray and feel, and I'm sure that many of us do as ministers, realize that the Charlotte congregation is mainly righteous. We all have our faults, our failures, our sins. But what makes us righteous? We'll talk about that a little later. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. So how do you seek God's righteousness? We just saw here. In his law, he meditates day and night. Sometimes we need to know what's right by getting counsel because it's a perplexing situation. We don't know the answer. We don't know what we want to do what's right, but we don't know what can we do. It's really quite an enigma, quite a problem. We can't solve it. Sometimes we have to get counsel. And in the multitude of counsel, there's safety. And sometimes even... I was talking with a friend here the other day, and I was thinking, someone may have told me in my life, and maybe someone you have told, perhaps your children, or maybe a supervisor said to you this, can't you do anything right? How many of you have heard that expression before? Okay, you've, you've, maybe you said it, but I know as we were discussing this issue, both of us concluded that we felt that way about ourselves in the times when we've failed and done things wrong. And I think, well, can't I do anything right? Well, Psalm 23 tells us he leads us in the paths of righteousness for his own name's sake. He leads us in the path of righteousness. And that's one of the keys of seeking God's righteousness. But there are wrong concepts of righteousness. You've heard the expression, might makes right. That was one of the morals of Aesop's fable, or Aesop's fable. He was a famous Greek writer from the 6th century B.C. And then there are principles of decision-making. How do we know what's right? We have to ask God for wisdom. And, of course, that's James 3, verse 17. Well, let's just turn there. We've mentioned before how some of us at Charlotte headquarters do daily read the Proverbs. Today is the 7th of January, so I read Proverbs 7 last night. Tonight or tomorrow, we'll read Proverbs 8. And so in 31 days, you go through all the 31 chapters of the book of Proverbs. James, the third chapter, tells us, how to seek godly wisdom. James, the third chapter, verse 17. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And what does that produce? The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So as you have the wisdom from above, you're going to be able to sow righteousness, and that's going to bring about peace. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. I was, uh, my wife mentioned me this morning as I was thinking about uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew, the fifth chapter, and the Beatitudes, and 
she said that one of our old deacons out in Pasadena, uh, that was back in the 60s, uh, Eddie Eckert, um, read the Sermon on the Mount every day. So that was news to me, but she told me that uh, he did that, read the Sermon on the Mount every day and felt that that was uh, helping him uh, have the wisdom to go toward the kingdom of God. So how do you make decisions? Well, you ask God for wisdom. You get the facts, and that's always very important. You get counsel. He that walks with wise men will be wise. That's Proverbs 13:20. Where there is no counsel, the people fight, fail, but in the multitude of counselors, there's safety. That's Proverbs 11, verse 14. Let's turn to Romans 8 and verse 14. Romans 8, and of course, Romans 8 is very deep in its spiritual concepts and teachings. We won't have time to go through all of Romans. We have a Bible study sometime on that. But Romans 8 and verse 14. Which way should I go? We want to be led by God's Spirit. Already referred to it, but Romans 8.14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And he goes on to tell us about God's Holy Spirit and the benefits and the blessings of it throughout this whole chapter, that we're more than conquerors, verse 37, through him who loved us. So he leads us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It tells us in Psalm 23, but as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Do you pray that you should be led by God's Spirit? And every once in a while I'll ask God, please give me some encouragement to let me know that you are leading me this day. And, of course, it's very simple things from time to time that God gives me encouragement. You know, I, well, years ago, some of us who... Uh, age, uh, we're supposed to age gracefully, by the way, but those of us who age may sometimes forget something. And literally, this did happen to me. I could not find my glasses, and yes, they were on the top of my head. That was years ago. I have not repeated that mistake uh, since. But God gives us encouragement. I've lost items, and uh, I had lost... Uh, even my month at a glance for 2012, and for weeks I was looking for it. And one day in my, I asked God to help me find it. And, and there at my desk in the office, I reached down underneath one of the drawers, and there it was. And it's just those little things that God encourages us to do. And sometimes he leads us by his spirit to remember someone that we have forgotten for years that maybe needs your love and contact and information. And God leads us by His Spirit. He draws us. And sometimes we think, oh, maybe I should have written so-and-so, or I should have called Mrs. Jones, or I should have... God leads us by His Spirit. Pray that He will do that. He will lead you into all righteousness. And yet, we have to be aware of the false forms of righteousness. Let's turn to Luke, the 18th chapter. Luke 18 And we see that there are those in the world, and maybe you and I, I know I have in the past, been self-righteous and had a form of righteousness that is not a godly righteousness. Luke 18, and starting with verse 9, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. 
Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves. Now, there's a certain degree of confidence. If you're applying the seven laws of success, if you've given speeches number one, two, and three in spokesman club, and now you're gaining some confidence in public speaking, that's fine. That's not trusting in yourself. That's following certain principles of successful public speaking. And when you do that and you have the attitude of 1 John 4:18, perfect love casts out fear, then you're going to be able to give. The reason you're up there speaking is to give something to your audience. But these men trusted in themselves. And, of course, God's confidence comes. That's uh, Proverbs 14:26, And the fear of the eternal is strong confidence. God gives us confidence because we're trusting in him. But these men trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. That tells you a little bit about their kind of righteousness. They despised others. That's not God's kind of love. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess. The tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So this was a type of legalism. Godly righteousness begins with humility. And it's God who justifies us through the blood of Christ. But this man tried to justify himself. And godly righteousness begins with repentance. Let's turn to Matthew 23, 23. You know that for the other false kind of righteousness. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Matthew twenty three twenty three. Jesus gives an attack speech, just blasting the Pharisees, calling them all kinds of names that were deserving. They were hypocrites. They were blind guides. They were fools and blind. He goes on to tell them, but verse 23, Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. So they had a form of righteousness that was legalism. They didn't have the justice mercy, and faith. And I heard an apostate preacher in worldwide years ago heard a recording and heard him say, as he read this verse, you see, the law's done away. You don't have to keep the law. All you need is justice, mercy, and faith. But what does it say? Those are matters of the law. Mercy, justice, and faith are not apart from the law. They, can, they comprise part of the law. 
And so they had a wrong kind of righteousness. Romans, the 10th chapter, they kept what was called the halakha. They had all these rules and regulations. There were 613 commandments, a part of the halakha. And, of course, that's why they criticized Jesus and the disciples when they were out in the cornfield on the Sabbath. They were omitting the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith, matters of the law. Romans 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, Romans 10, 2, but not according to knowledge. And how wonderful it is that God has revealed to us his truth. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness, verse 3, and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. So they are setting their own standards, not God's standards. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And, of course, some of the Protestants use this to, to say, oh, or Christ ended the law. No, Christ is the object. He is the purpose of the law. He fulfilled the law. As he said in Matthew 5:17. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. He didn't end the law. Because, as it says in 1 Peter 1, 9, you are receiving the end of your faith. Does that mean you end your faith? No. You're receiving the goal of your faith, as it says in 1 Peter 1, 9, the salvation of your souls. So we see there are false standards, false systems of righteousness. And teenagers, set some of them in the world, and I won't say just teenagers, but the world itself, society itself, Sets its own standard. What is the in thing to do? The in thing now is maybe cocaine. Maybe it's heroin. Maybe it's some other new exotic drug. That's the in thing. That's the right thing to do. No, it's not the right thing to do. It's the unrighteous thing to do. It's the sinful thing to do. We have to recognize what standards and who is setting the standards. Who is setting uh, the morality? It's like... uh, Calvin, again, uh, was saying to uh, Hobbes, Today at school I tried to decide whether to cheat on my test or not. Calvin says to Hobbes, I wondered, is it better to do the right thing and fail, or is it better to do the wrong thing and succeed? (laughs) On the one hand, undeserved success gives no satisfaction, But on the other hand, well-deserved failure gives no satisfaction either. Then I thought, look, cheating on one little test isn't such a big deal. It doesn't hurt anyone. But then I wondered if I was just rationalizing my unwillingness to accept the consequence of not studying. What a philosopher Calvin is. Still in the real world, people care about success, not principles. Then again... Maybe that's why the world is in such a mess. What a dilemma. And so Tiger uh, Hobbes asked Calvin, so what did you decide? Calvin says, nothing. I ran out of time and I had to turn in a blank paper. (laughs) So he didn't uh, decide to cheat and he didn't try to succeed either in a moral way. 
So many people, cheating is very rampant in in high schools and uh, colleges. Uh, But God knows our thoughts and attitudes, and he's creating in us perfect righteous character. And the basis of true and right character is the ability to be truthful, to say the truth, to recognize the truth, and to act on the truth, and not be duplicitous, not be hypocritical. So we've seen one standard or a couple systems of false righteousness. Then there's the other danger of self-righteousness. Some say that Job was not self-righteous, but let's take a look at that in Job, the 34th chapter. We'll spend a little time here in Job looking at self-righteousness. It's uh, certainly a very dangerous condition for any of us to be in. Mr. Debar Partian gave a sermon on self-righteousness by that title, number 92, and Mr. Rod King gave a sermon titled Self-Righteousness, number 604. So you can check those sermons out. But here Elihu is speaking in Job, the 34th chapter. Now, Elihu was the young man there. They're the four wise friends of Job who could not convict him. And then after all they were said and done, they see speaking, and Elihu, the young man, begins to speak. Elihu was not corrected by God. Remember, at the end of the story, God told Job to pray for his three friends, not for Elihu. What Elihu said was an accurate analysis of Job's condition and situation. So Job 34, verse 5. Elihu says, for Job has said, I am righteous, but God has taken away my justice. So he's saying Job said he was righteous. Verse 9, for he has said it profits a man nothing that he should delight in God. Turn back to chapter 32 and verse 1. I gave the little background here. So these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, was aroused against Job. His wrath was aroused because he, Job, justified himself rather than God. Also against his three friends, his wrath was aroused because they had found no answer and yet condemned him. In chapter 33, um, Elihu continues with his correction. Verse 12, look in this, you are not righteous. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend with him? For he does not give an accounting of any of his words. And then over the page... One verse that I hope you have marked, and I think is one of the most important verses in all of the book of Job, and a very spiritual lesson for all of us, Job 34, verse 31. Job 34, verse 31. He's asking it in the form of a question. For has anyone said to God, I have borne chastening, I will offend no more? Teach me what I do not see. If I have done iniquity, I will do no more. That's what someone should have said. And that's what Dr. Meredith has said about himself when he had a stroke. He said, I want to know, see what I don't see. I need to learn what are lessons I need to learn. 
And when we're going through it, while Job was going through the severe pain and trial, he was justifying himself. He was setting a standard of righteousness of of himself. And he did not say what he should have said. What he should have said was, I have borne chastening, I will offend no more. Teach me what I do not see. If I have done iniquity, I will do no more. That is a principle that all of us should abide by, and particularly as we come to the Passover in the springtime. You think of this verse. We're going through trials and tests and wondering, why am I experiencing this test? It may not be because of a, a direct sin that you've committed, but it may be, and you ask this question in terms of self-examination. Eli Hugh condemns self-righteousness as the heading here for chapter 35. Moreover, Eli Hugh answered and said, Do you think this is right? Do you say my righteousness is more than God's? Verse Chapter 36, verse 3, I will ascribe righteousness to my Maker. So let's understand God wants us to be righteous, and there are tremendous blessings for our being a righteous congregation and the congregation of the righteous. God knows the way of the righteous. And he wants us to be that congregation of righteousness, but he wants us to ascribe that righteousness to our Maker. And then in chapter 38, God then begins to speak to Job after Elihu has given him strong correction. In verse 4, God says to Job, Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. No, he wasn't around. And after God began to describe much of the creation of, of which Job was ignorant, he began in contrast to see the greatness of God. And seeing the greatness of God was able to see his own human nature. So he finally repented in chapter 42. I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. There's that intellectual understanding, but is that, have you ever come to that face-to-face, heart-to-heart recognition contrasted with God's greatness and your sinfulness? I have, and I know it was very, very humbling. I know there are times when I cried in great tears, understanding God's mercy towards my human nature and sinfulness over a long period of time. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. And, of course, God blessed him after that repentance. Verse 12, Now the Eternal blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. For he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. So God blessed him going through that great trial. And God allowed the trial because he knew that Job was a strong 
had strong character, but that character yet needed molding. And God, the great masterpiece of creation, helped Job to come to repentance. Isaiah 64, let's turn there, to understand that self-righteousness is described this way in Isaiah 64, verse 6. But we are all like an unclean thing, Isaiah confesses. All our righteousnesses are like filthy rags or a filthy garment. We all fade as a leaf. All our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. And there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. Again, back to Jeremiah 13. God caused the whole house of Israel to cling to him, to cleave to him. And we have to stir up ourselves, as it says, to take hold of God. Remember, Jacob wrestled with God and wouldn't let him go with the one who became Jesus Christ. I won't let you go unless you give me a blessing. And God did bless him. And we have to wrestle sometimes with God. That's one of the strategies of prayer, to wrestle with God in prayer and stick with it. It's something that is very serious. You stick with it and you pray and you pray and you take hold of God. So we need to avoid those forms of false righteousness, self-righteousness, unrighteousness. And if we identify any semblance of that in our lives, we need to overcome it and place it, replace it with God's righteousness. And the world lives by unrighteousness. It's Proverbs 14.12 and Proverbs 16.25 that describes human nature. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. That human beings think, you know, this is work, this will work, this is best in my life, but it ends in death. That's the way of unrighteousness. It says in 1 John 5:19, We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Or in the King James Version, the whole world lies in wickedness. So we have to make sure that we take the warning that we do not allow unrighteousness to become a part of our character, our thinking, our routine, part of our daily life. And we have to take that action. Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7. Again, that fundamental scripture is an appeal to all human beings. Seek the eternal while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Isaiah 55, verse 6. Because there's coming a time when there will be a famine of the word, as it says in Amos 8 and verse 11. People will go from the east to the west to the north wanting to find the word of the Lord, and they won't be able to find it. And so we don't have all that much time. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the eternal, and you will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. We need to practice righteousness as a way of life. God will pardon and forgive the unrighteous man and women or woman 
if he or she repents. But God warns us to avoid unrighteousness, and we need to practice righteous living. Let's turn to 1 John, the second chapter, 1 John 2. Dr. Meredith quoted this in his last great day sermon in Panama City last October. Very important scripture in terms of our identity and in terms of our instruction from God. 1 John 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. And so I hope it is that, that fine line, again, that you realize as some of the axioms or wisdom of the day, that you live your physical life as if you're going to live another 20 or 30 years. You live your spiritual life as if you may only have today. It was that uh, non-sequitur battle of the street corner prophets. One had a sign said, Repent, you may die today. And the other one said, Rejoice, today is the first day for the rest of your life. And so you have that, that, that conflict of, yes, you have to plan long term, live your life as if you're going to live a long period of time, but know spiritually that if you were to die today, that you're in God's hands. That's so important. That we not be ashamed before a man is coming. If you know that he is righteous, which we do know, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is should be begotten of him. So God wants us to practice righteousness. That means just the right way of living. And what's the right way of living? The Bible tells us from Genesis to Revelation, the right way of living. And Christ set the example. And the Sermon on the Mount shows the spiritual application of the commandments. Let's turn to Romans, the sixth chapter, Romans 6. Here again, we, as a life, a way of life, we practice righteousness. Romans 6, starting with verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. So you are not under the penalty of the law. If you transgress the law, you're under the penalty. But you're under grace because you're in a repentant attitude, and God forgives you. You confess your sins. As he says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But you're under grace. Then the heading, subhead, from slaves of sin to slaves of God. Verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. So those who say they're under grace say, well, you know, we don't have to worry about sinning. And if you sin, you know, God just covers that up with grace. That's just turning grace into lawlessness. He says you're turning it to lewdness, Jude warns against, turning the grace of our God into lawlessness and lewdness. Verse 16, do you not know to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? You are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death, of obedience leading to righteousness.
Verse 18, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. <laughs> Oh, it's so sad to see this uh, one lady back in Worldwide who said, Oh, no, I'm free. I'm free from the law. What she was actually saying, I am free from righteousness, and I am now deciding to be a slave to sin, the transgression of the law. So sad to have that deception, that heresy to convince people that they are to turn from God's way of righteousness. So... Our faith is counted for righteousness, Romans the fourth chapter, Romans 4, starting with verse 1. Our song leader, uh, Mr. Dexter Wakefield, has an article in the March-April 2012 LCN titled, Two Points About Christ's Sacrifice. He writes, because God's grace cannot be earned, our faith is counted for our righteousness. Then he quotes Romans 4, verses 1 through 5. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, uh, but as debt. So Abraham believed God, and it was counted as righteousness. But here the Protestants take, well, all you have to believe, all you have to do is believe. In other words, you don't have to obey God. Because obedience has to do in a perverted sense in their teaching with works. And if you obey God, that's works and you're earning your salvation by works. Just a perverted heretical doctrine. And yet, James tells us a little more about Abraham believed God, and it was counted for righteousness. So let's turn back there to James, the second chapter. It's not an empty belief. It's a belief that has a life of obedience along with that belief and that faith. James, the second chapter, and starting with, well... Uh, verse 14, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith say him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, James said, and I will show you my faith by my works. You really can't show faith without any evidence of that faith. And he goes on to say, you believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works was dead, is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. So while the expression, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, is quoted two other times, in this case it gives the context of why and how Abraham believed God and how it was accounted for righteousness.
Let's turn to Matthew, the fifth chapter, Matthew 5. Yes, we need to believe and have the works in our lives that demonstrate God's faith and God's righteousness. Matthew, the fifth chapter, Matthew 5. If you ever do a topical study on righteousness, you'll find hundreds and hundreds of references uh, to the words righteous or righteousness. But here's one of the higher standards that God gives us, Matthew 5 and verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. They were so righteous that they did everything. They washed their hands uh, before each meal. They they did everything. Not, now, we should do that, by the way. Uh, but they were overly zealous in the minutia. They tied mint and cumin, as he said. Well, you should do that, but they were so meticulous in the way they did things. And yet they omitted, of course, the weightier matters of the law. So how? They were so righteous, how could we ever have righteousness that would exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes? The following verses tell us how. They're called the six antitheses that it's just the opposite of what you've said and what you believe, Pharisees and scribes. Here's the spiritual righteousness that you need to apply. Murder begins at the heart. Verse 21, adultery in the heart. Verse 30, 27, marriage is sacred and binding. Verse 31, then uh, Jesus forbids oaths, verse 33, go the second mile, actually talking about revenge here. Uh, you should not, their, their righteousness was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But that's not God's righteousness. This kind of righteousness exceeds greatly the righteousness of the, fri- uh, the scribes and the Pharisees. And then verse 43, the sixth antithesis, the opposite to what they believe. You should have heard that it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So God gives us all kinds of blessings and shows us the kind of righteousness that all of us can have, should have, and most of us do have. And that's through God's Spirit applying the spiritual aspect of the law. Let's turn back to uh, Proverbs 8. And I was just sitting there by the coffee table the other night, and I thought, well, I'm just going to look. I had a highlighter, a marker pen, and I thought, well, I'm just going to mark the words righteous and righteousness here. And so I, uh, and I'll just, some of you cannot see this, but I just started uh, doing it in pink. And you can see uh, this is, Proverbs 10 through Proverbs 12, and all the pink marks on that are the words righteous or righteousness. But let's take a look at a couple of the blessings that come from God's righteousness. And let's start here in chapter 8 and verse 18. Riches and honor are with me, says wisdom personified, enduring riches and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, and yes, than fine gold, and my revenue than choice silver. I traverse the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of justice. Uh, Chapter 10, verse 2. 
The treasures of wickedness profit nothing, but righteousness delivers from death. You talk about the blessings of righteousness. Verse 11, uh, Proverbs 10, the mouth of the righteous is a well of life. Verse 16, the labor of the righteous tends to life. Verse 20, the tongue of the righteous is choice silver. Just on and on and on. Verse 30, the righteous will never be removed, but the wicked will not inherit or not inhabit the earth. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut out. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable. We have to be discreet, wise as serpents and harmless as doves. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked, what is perverse. Chapter 11, verse 4. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the blameless will direct his way aright. The wicked will fall by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright will deliver them. And this just goes on and on and on. Verse 30 of chapter 11. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. I will, I would just encourage all of you to do your own chain, your own topical study, looking through the book of Proverbs. There's one that uh, my friend wanted to uh, emphasize, and that's Proverbs 29, 6. By transgression, an evil man is snared, but the righteous sings and rejoices. So we've just seen some of the blessings of godly righteousness. But how do we stay righteous? Romans, the eighth chapter, tells us how. And we realize, of course, that Christ is righteous. And if he's living his life in us, we also will be righteous. Romans, the eighth chapter. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Because when you are in a repentant attitude for the rest of your life, and I hope that you've committed yourself to be in a teachable attitude and a repentant attitude for the rest of your life, then whenever something comes up and you're convicted, whether you God brings it to your mind, whether someone else brings it to your mind, you immediately admit it. I'm wrong. I'm sorry. God, please forgive me. I won't do that again. I'll take steps to avoid repeating that same sin or mistake. God forgives you. There is no condemnation who are in Christ Jesus because you have that teachable, that repentant attitude, and you're willing to change. Some of us are told that we have a problem, and we can't see it. And we have to pray that if we're trying to help someone to see his or her problem, we can help them see it. Because you can say, you have this problem. Well, that doesn't help the person unless he or she can see how he or she has that problem. So we have to, again, be repentant and understand that, yes, we can always be in a state of righteousness because the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. And it's not our righteousnesses, but it's God's righteousness. And we look forward to the time, Second Peter, the third chapter, when there will be no more unrighteousness. Second Peter 3. We look forward to the time when, as Peter wrote, Second Peter 3, 
verse 13. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which dwells righteousness. So we look forward to that time in which righteousness dwells in the kingdom of God. And we also will have righteousness, as the Apostle Paul said in his closing epistle. Well, let's turn there. Second Timothy 4, verse 6. Second Peter 4. Second Timothy 4, verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And we all need to have that strength and courage in 2012 as we face the challenges of natural disasters, of conflicts and war and upset global financial crises and all the other kinds of challenges we'll face. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who love his appearing. One final scripture is turned to Matthew, the 13th chapter, the parable of the tares. He talks about the good seed are the sons of God. They're the good children, but... When he has the harvest, the bad part of that reaping will be sent into the furnace of fire. There'll be wailing and gnashing of teeth. But here's that wonderful encouragement at the end of the story in verse 43. Then the righteous will shine forth as the son of the kingdom of their father, who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So we will shine like the firmament. And he says, those who are wise shall turn many to righteousness, as it tells us in Daniel 12:3. And we as a church, as God's people, are striving to do that. Preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God as a witness to the whole world. Turning many to righteousness. So, brethren, let's continue with that mission, and let's seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, including faith, will be added to us.